Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. When an event truly captivates the nation, it's usually because it touches on something that we're not very good at talking about. Such was the case with the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Reaction to Christine Blasey Ford personified a complex contradiction in our society. While many, even some men, respected her appearance and professionalism, they were way too quick to identify and accept Brett Kavanaugh's college sexual entitlement as some kind of norm. In doing that, one wonders what is the message that we're sending to young men and boys today. The disconnect between young men being able to sort of acknowledge the professional, social, and cultural equality of women, coupled with the retarded evolution of their sexuality, which seems to be in a time warp stuck somewhere in 1955, creates a cognitive dissidence that today's young men can't seem to adapt to, and we're all paying the price for it. It's no wonder, then, that people like Jordan Peterson tell his audience of angry young men to look back to the 1950s. The disconnect between the pace of our culture and the slow changes in young men's attitude toward sexuality seems to lie at the heart of the confusion that boys are experiencing today as they try to come to grips with intimacy and sexuality in a changing world. We're going to talk about this with my guest, Peggy Orenstein. She's a New York Times bestselling author of Cinderella Ate My Daughter, Waiting for Daisy, Flux, and Schoolgirls. She's a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, and it is my pleasure to welcome Peggy Orenstein back to this program to talk about her newest work, Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity. Peggy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me back, Jeff. Well, it's great to have you here. After spending so many years looking at the lives of girls, the inner lives of, of girls and young women, talk a little bit about the evolution of your thinking with respect to, to changing the focus to what boys and, and young men are up to. Well, you know, initially it was never my intent, but everywhere that I went after um, publishing Girls and Sex, parents and teachers and girls and boys themselves asked when I was going to write about boys. And, you know, I, I wasn't sure that I, you know, that I was the right person to do that. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that people weren't listening to boys or, or talking to boys. People weren't, people weren't listening to boys in, in what is, you know, is really a new era. Um, and especially after the Me Too allegations, and as you said, the Kavanaugh case and all of these things, there became an imperative to um, reduce sexual violence. But also, I thought, a real opportunity to engage young men in this kind of discussion about sex, about intimacy, about masculinity, about gender dynamics, and really understand what was going on in their heads so that we could help them make the best choices. And one of the things that you talk about is that it was easier to get young boys and young men to talk about these issues than you thought it was going to be. Yeah, it really was. I was very worried that I would have entire transcripts that <laughs> consisted of basically, uh-huh, <laughs> nope. You know, because it's not like boys have a reputation for chattiness. But the truth was, was that they were more eager um, to talk than the girls. They were more forthcoming. Our, their conversations were blunt. They were often pained. Um, they were really wrestling with these ideas. And I realized that it's just very rare uh, for boys to have the opportunity to speak honestly and from the heart about their interior lives. So they really took the opportunity. And as you started talking to these boys, what were some of the consistent themes, some of the consistent issues that really came to the surface in these conversations? Well, I'll tell you, in a way, um, even more than anything that was about 
sex in the book and, and, you know, their relationships with their romantic partners at the core of the book, I felt like they were wrestling with vulnerability. And, and when I look at girls and sex and boys and sex side by side, it feels to me like the girl book was very much about the ways that girls were disconnected from their bodies, their desires, their wants, their limits. And the boy book is very much about how guys are disconnected from their hearts and the guys would talk about, you know, how they learned at a very young age to put up a wall between their true feelings and the feelings that they were allowed in the world, which was pretty much anger and happiness. And as they talked about that, I thought, you know, what, what does it mean when people are cut off from their vulnerability or from their emotional accessibility? And it not only, you know, is, is a fundamental human trait and need, but it's Brene Brown calls it the um, secret sauce that um, holds relationships together. And so when we do that, we reduce and deny boys' capacity to have the kind of meaningful and personally fulfilling relationships that we want for them. And that harms them and it radiates outward and harms the romantic partners. One of the things that, that seems striking, as I kind of alluded to it in the introduction, is this idea that that there was a willingness to understand girls and, and young women with respect to a certain level of equality in a social context or in a school mm-hmm. context, but not with respect to sexuality. Talk about that dissonance. Right. It was a public-private um, split. And, and in some ways that mirrored what, was, what I had seen with the girls. That, yeah, in, in the public life, of course, they saw girls as um, deserving of their place in the classroom, um, um, in educational opportunity, leadership. They had female friends. They had gay male friends. But then... You know, when I would talk to them about the ideal guy, um, one of the first things they would talk about is sexual con- conquest um, and that being the measure of the man and that being a, a true route to, you know, status seeking. Um, and you can hear that when you hear how boys, for instance, talk about locker room culture, right? Um, what do they say in the locker room? They hammer, they nail, they pound, they bang, they hit that, they tap that, they pipe that, they tear her up. They were, you know, it's like they went to a construction site. Not like they, you know, like they engaged in an act of intimacy. Um, and the guys that I talked to, um, a lot of them had actually dropped out of sports because they, not because of they didn't like the games or because they weren't good at them, but because they, that locker room talk was so odious to them. Um, and a lot of times, you know, it was coming straight from the coaches. So they were not just taking it. They were struggling, but they also were having difficulty speaking out against it or standing up to it. And it was kind of in that silence that they were learning the rules of masculinity. And there was an element of that, as, as I alluded to, an element of that in Kavanaugh, in, in the way people reacted to Christine Blasey Ford. And, you know, they said all the right respectful things, but yet they were very quick to buy into to Kavanaugh's kind of locker room take on things. Well, you know, somebody did that to her, but not him, obviously. <laughs> but that was, I think, even more than locker room. To me, that was a lot about the myth of the good guy. Mm-hmm. And I talk mm-hmm. a lot in Boys and Sex about how we believe, I mean, I almost called the book, I know I'm a good guy, but dot, 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 because I heard that so many times from boys, but my publisher wasn't going to let me do that. <laughs> right. um, had to be, you know, boys and sex and girls and sex. Um, but, you know, we we want to believe that only monsters assault. And so everyone who assaults is a monster. So 
by, and I'm an English major, so I'm going to give a whack at math here, but by the transitive property, if you're a good guy and good guys can't assault, then whatever you did could not possibly be assault because you are a good guy. So that means that guys will go through real mental gymnastics in order to make whatever happened not a problem. Um, and, and that is, you know, people talk about miscommunication, but it's not really miscommunication that happens. It is false assumptions and a desire on the part of, um, of, of some men that, that socialized into them to control the narrative of consent. Um, so that's what I think, you know, the, in a kind of more, I guess, academic way or, or socialized way was going on with him. The more he insisted, I'm a good guy, I'm a good guy, the more people would have to say, well, good guys can't assault. So if he is a good guy, he can't possibly have done that. And that really blinds us to the ways that ordinary guys um, can be coercive, can cross lines of consent, can engage in misconduct, can assault. And what can we do to create recognition of that? Uh, to prevent it, obviously, but also to create recognition and accountability. And one thing that was important to me in writing Boys and Sex was to make those gender dynamics and that socialization really visible so that we can discuss it with boys. Where do parents fit into this equation, both fathers and mothers? Um, well, you know, one of the things that was really loud and clear was the silence, um, if if I can say that. You know, that, that parents were not talking to particularly their boys. I mean, they don't even, they talk to their girls about sex some, but not that much. And they talk to boys less. And so there's, there's all kinds of research that shows that, yeah, kids are going to, and the boys would say this to me all the time, you know, I, I wish my parents talked to me, even though it would be totally uncomfortable and horrible and awkward. You know, I wish that I wish they had talked to me so I was known a little more, um, something besides, you know, the, the two sex ed classes I had, if you even had that in porn, before I walked into the room um, with a girl, it would have been helpful. And they will also say, and research bears this out, that parents are the source of those restrictive gender roles, and particularly dads. And so the guys that I met, you know, there were guys who said, yeah, my dad would say man up and that sort of thing. But more of them would say things like the boy who said, my dad wasn't sexist. My dad wasn't homophobic. He didn't, you know, teach me that so-called toxic masculinity, but he did model the emotionally stunted side of masculinity. He was more, you know, he wouldn't ever ask you how you were feeling or what was going on. He was that sigh and walk away kind of guy. So I learned not to have those conversations from him. And what about the mothers who are arguably more empowered as, as young men see them? Well, you know, there's a, there, there's a couple interesting things about moms. One is that um, when they have infants, and this is something that, that par- parents of newborns can be really aware of, they tend to talk with more a broader emotional vocabulary um, and more often to infant daughters than infant sons. And with infant boys, when they do focus on emotion, they tend to focus more on anger than on other emotions, um, on recognizing that and naming that. So that's you know one thing, that, that boys grow up in a more impoverished landscape from the get-go. And the other piece that I thought a lot about, there was a boy that I talked to who was telling me about his breaking up with his girlfriend and basically spiraling into a depression, but feeling like he couldn't say anything or do anything or talk to anybody because that would be weak. And, and he tried going to therapy, but that felt weird because it was weak. And finally he went home for Thanksgiving break and he said, I had kind of a breakdown in front of my mom. And she said, you know, spill it. And he talked to his mom and that helped. And that was great. 
And I also thought about how often boys, when they confide, will confide, particularly in their mothers. And I think that feels very good and sweet to mothers, justifiably so. But when we process our boys' emotions for them rather than helping them learn to process those emotions themselves, we play into this idea that women are there to do men's emotional labor. And that can feel really good when it's your son, but in adult relationships, it doesn't feel so good and it can leave young men incapable of engaging in the ways that we want them to with their partners. And one of the things is that that it's remarkable how little this landscape has changed in, in many years. Yeah, I mean, it has and it hasn't. There's ways that it did, ways that it didn't. Like, you know, if you look at, um, I don't know, the way boys use homophobic slurs, you know, in some ways that had changed. Um, they did it somewhat less. And they also would say things like, because they had gay friends, they would say, well, I would never say that to a gay, I would never call a gay person the F word. That, that would be wrong. So somehow it was okay to say that to your straight friend, but not your gay friend that made it okay you know it, so there's like sort of weird changes um but you know th- that was because that word was a, a a referendum on masculinity it wasn't really about sexual orientation and it was about policing kind of the lines of what's called the man box and shutting down any attempt to challenge it um and so that was really interesting to watch how boys learn that but i also wasn't that surprised that there was both progress and you know, things that just were so deep and enduring because that was what I had been exploring with girls for 25 years. You know, the things that the, all the new expectations, which were great and good and important and the ways that we hadn't let go of, let go of old assumptions and the ways that that was undermining and hurting um, girls' well-being. So the same is very much true of boys. Yeah, there's the sense that that the cultural changes can happen faster than the changes related to sexuality. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I suppose it's the private life, you know, a lot, a lot of what is still, um, very fraught, um, and unquestioned is the private life. And part of that I think is because we don't talk about it with kids. And part of it is because as, um, the public culture has changed, the media culture has grown more and more sexualized, um, more and more, frankly, misogynist. And the whether you're talking about mainstream media or adult media, um, what kids are absorbing, it, there's a constant bombardment of messages ar- around male sexual entitlement, female sexual availability, male sexual dominance, female sexual submission. Um, and that, you know, really affects how kids conduct themselves, especially, again, in light of parental and educational silence. Is there a socioeconomic component to understanding this? You know, I wasn't looking at socioeconomic issues per se, although I did look at issues of ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity. That said, one thing that I was really um, was really clear to me, and again, I think this plays into the Kavanaugh case, was that boys who were particularly in um, elite colleges tended to think it wasn't about them, against all evidence. So they would say things all the time like, um, oh, it's boys in those state schools who are doing those, you know, who are treating girls badly. It's boys in those state schools who are assaulting. And, you know, that just was, it's not true based on statistics. It's not true based on the latest Association of American Association of Universities report. 
And I do a whole litany after boys are sort of saying that to me of all that had happened in elite colleges like Harvard, like Amherst, like Princeton, um, like Stanford, you know, in the space of about four months, um, one year. And so there's a way that elite guys will think that they're intelligent. I, I wouldn't even know if they have superior intelligence, but certainly their superior SAT scores um, preclude bad behavior rather than just better insulating them from its results. Right. And you have people like Jordan Peterson showing up at these elite schools and, and having a following there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you have things like I was at a school in California that was um, an, an elite college and I was I was hanging out at a um, freshman pregame party, you know, as one does in middle age, because that's not awkward at all. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And, uh, and and these, you know, I was talking to these boys and they wanted to know what I was doing there, obviously. And I told them I was studying hookup culture. Um, which was true, and they took that to immediately mean I wanted to know about assault, which was not actually what I was there for. But what they said was, um, you know, it's those boys at the state schools that do that stuff. And I said, well, you know, Brock Turner was at Stanford. And their response was, well, yeah, but he was an athlete. He wasn't there on merit. So there, there's a constant sense of, you know, of, of denial, of deflection, of pushing away, and of not wanting to reckon with um, behavior that might be going on in your peer group. What do you make of, of the anger that sometimes manifests itself you know, at college age and, and maybe a little bit beyond at some of these young men? A little bit beyond? <laughs> <laughs> right. Apparently you haven't seen my Twitter feed, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I just think it's it's about fear. You know, I, I think that um, ideas about, and, and I remember, you know, years ago when I was writing my first book, School Girls, which came out in 1994, and that book was about um, uh, the transition to adolescence. And one of the things I was looking at was um, educational um, bias against girls and the ways that teachers had a sort of tendency to call on um, boys more. In, in classrooms. And I talked to a sixth grade teacher who was holding her attendance roster and she, because she realized this and she would call on the kids, boy, girl, boy, girl, absolutely evenly down the line. And she said, after three days of doing that, the boys in the class rebelled. They got really angry. They said she was favoring girls. It wasn't fair. And she was really perplexed because she knew she wasn't doing that. She knew that what she had created was equality for the first time. And she said, you know, I realized that the boys perceive equality as a loss. And I think that sometimes, you know, initially it can feel that way to, to boys and men. Um, but we also know that clinging to those rigid masculine norms, while they definitely, you know, it, it has its rewards. Like you can become president by clinging to those rigid masculine <laughs> norms. Right. Um, and we know that they also come at a tremendous cost. Um, not only now to our country on a macro level, but on a micro level, guys who cling to those norms tend to be not only more violent to others, bullying others, more likely to sexually harass, more likely to assault, but they're more likely to be the victims of violence, more likely to binge drink, more likely to be in car accidents, more likely to die of suicide, more likely to be depressed. They have fewer people to confide in. They're lonelier. You know, the list goes on and on. There was just a study yesterday that came out that said that veterans... Um, with who cling to masculine norms, military veterans um, are are have are more likely to have PTSD and to suffer for longer 
than other men. So there are so many ways that it is negative and harmful to men and to their partners when they cling to these norms that the evidence is just kind of overwhelming. Are we teasing any of this out as younger generations come along? Is Generation Z better than the millennials, for example? In- um, I, I, don't know if, I, I don't know if I can compare Z to millennials, but I can say that I can compare them to their own parents, and I, so maybe to Xers or to baby boomers. And I think in that sense, yes. And I think what was really hopeful to me about this, about talking to the boys, was that they were not blank slates for the culture to inscribe on. They were really wrestling with these ideas. And that was why it was interesting and important to talk to them at this moment in history, because it felt like an inflection point. It felt like a time when we've been discussing all of these issues in the, you know, in a larger culture and boys were really thinking about them and, and wanting something different. And even the things that they were wrestling with, uh, you know, one of the boys that, that had um, possibly, crossed the line into misconduct. He wasn't sure. I can't say because I didn't talk to the girl who was involved. Um, but what he did in that moment, when he, when, in, that, in that encounter, five years ago, I honestly don't think a boy would even think to question whether that was wrong. You know, to, to think, uh-oh, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have done that. They wouldn't have even thought about it. They wouldn't have thought twice. So I think that the, what is changing, at least among a lot of guys, obviously we live in a very polarized country, but a lot of guys are thinking in a different way and in a new way and, and trying to examine that kind of behavior. And, you know, even a guy that I talked to who was on a Big Ten football team um, started talking to me out of the blue about toxic masculinity. And I just kind of looked at him and said, wow, you know that term? And he just said, well, everybody knows that term. What are you kidding me? And I thought, you know, this has changed. I'm not saying that's a negative term, but the fact that he was having that kind of conversation was was a new thing and a really hopeful sign and a desire on the part of young men to have more guidance and to be their best selves. What role does technology, if any, play in all this? You know, when you talk about young girls, there's a lot of talk about the influence and the impact of social media and fear of missing out, et cetera, et cetera. Where, where does technology fit into to what's evolving as far as these boys are concerned? Well, there's, you know, the, the, the same kind of issues of, of social media and technology and both um, the, um, the visual culture aspect of it that, you know, values the superficial and also, you know, a lot of potential for misconduct in, in texting, sexting, badgering girls for nudes um, or, or unsoli- getting them unsolicited. There's that whole piece is huge. Um, there's also technology has uh, created a situation where the, where a new generation is basically one giant um, experiment in pornography. So um, the combination of the smartphone, the internet, and the um, fact that porn came out from behind the paywall uh, in 2007 when Pornhub went online means that um, young people and boys in particular, but girls too, uh, can get... Um, anything that you can imagine and, you know, a lot that you frankly don't really want to imagine right at their fingertips all the time. And what that kind of easy access porn, you know, and obviously curiosity about sex is normal, masturbation, you know, great. But that easy access anonymous free porn, what they're getting is over and over and over imagery um, that reinforces the idea that sex is something men do to women, that um, female pleasure 
wildly and accurately portrayed is something that is a performance for male satisfaction. And when we're not talking to our kids about sex, and this is why we don't have the luxury not to engage anymore. Um, A, because boys need to understand consent loud and clear, and B, because they have such a wildly inaccurate idea of what sex is. And when we're not telling them what's real, what's not real, what's missing from those images, they are bringing that into the bedroom. And even though they will say, yeah, I know the difference between reality and fantasy, well, how would they know that? And the whole point of media is that it affects our thoughts, our beliefs, our behaviors, even when we think it doesn't. So there's a lot of there's research that shows that guys who watch porn are actually less satisfied with their partner's experience or their partnered experience than other guys, and that they're um, also more likely to believe that those images are real and want to act out some of the more aggressive behaviors depicted in them. So, and I guess the overlay to that becomes where does the counter narrative come from? I mean, yes, the parents right. have to do that. Yes, there needs to be more conversation. We, we know what the traditional narrative is, all the things we've been talking about. Where does that counter-narrative come from, and, and, and how is it taking, how can it take root? Well, I think, you know, we have to have a lot, it has to come from a lot of different places, and it has to come in small bites a lot. You know, like we, the, the idea of the talk is an outmoded concept. And it would be sort of the equivalent of, you know, trying to teach table manners in one sitting. If you sat your, <laughs> your child down and said, you know, say, say please and thank you, use your knife and fork, don't burp at the table, okay, go forth and be polite, that would be ridiculous. We know that wouldn't work. Um, so it's a lot of conversations that are about consent, yes, but not just about consent, about sex, yes, but not just about sex, um, about hookup culture. And, you know, I mean, I wrote the book in hopes of allowing adults to see what, boys world looks like and how they talk about it in their voices um, and also for boys themselves to be able to maybe open up a dialogue um, within their heads or with other guys in a more meaningful way um, but and, and at the end I do talk about the kinds of topics we need to address so even you know I just mentioned the media and porn I feel like that's something that we've done much better with girls on that over the last 25 years that I've written about girls Parents, teachers, advocates, activists, everybody, we recognize how harmful those messages in the media are to girls' well-being. And we have created basically an edifice of ideas and books and organizations that help girls resist those messages. They're not perfect. It's not, you know, they still seep in, but we try to help them resist them, right? I mean, everybody knows that across political spectra, everything. There's nothing for boys. We're not at all talking to boys about how the media affects their perceptions of masculinity, femininity, and sex, and yet they're swimming in that same stew, and I would argue it's turned up higher. So right there, that's the thing we can do. Talking to boys about, you know, especially dads, talking in a compassionate way, listening compassionately, bringing up emotion, talking with connection, you know, that's huge in changing how boys go out in the world. There's a lot of little things little conversations that we need to have throughout boys' lives um, to make these kinds of changes, just like we do with girls. Peggy Orenstein, the book is Boys and Sex. Peggy, it is always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. I love being on your show. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you.